Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, let's go ahead to Psalm 11. Thank you for all your sharing uh, about those things. And Psalm 11 is not a long psalm. It is uh, one that um, is another one that uh, is really um, meaningful to me, uh, along with the psalms that talk about God as refuge. And I think in, at least in verse 1 or 2, depending on the different translations we have here, we might have some dramatically different wording for the way Psalm 1 and 2 reads. And so uh, we'll talk about that as we go along. But Psalm 1, in verse 1, this is the New King James Version, says, "...in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain?" For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. And then he says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? One of the great questions of the scriptures, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Psalm 11. Well, it's a short but beautiful psalm. I wonder uh, who in here in your verse 1 has uh, the word refuge instead of the word trust. George does. We've got Jameson and Anna back here and Patsy over here. Vance does too. Yeah, um, most uh, other translations bring in the word refuge here. And so I looked it up. I took the time to look up in the Hebrew and see what would be the better way to bring that out there. And I do think it should read, the Lord is my refuge. Uh, most of the times the words you, that's uh, translated trust here is uh, used as refuge. It's not the only word for refuge, uh, but it is usually refuge. And refuge is such a beautiful word. It, it reminds me of when I was a kid, you know, and I'd play hide and go seek. And uh, remember that someone would count to 50 or 100 or something like that. Everyone would run and hide. And after they started coming toward where you were, your heartbeat would go up. You know, it'd be beaten. You know, you'd be in there saying, oh man, I hope that I got a good refuge. I hope I got a good hiding place here and they won't be able to find me. But then you would see that the person hunting you turned briefly in another direction and you would seize the opportunity to run to the base if you could or to another refuge that you had picked out and those things. You knew if you got there, you would be safe despite the imminent danger. Your hiding place to the place that's home base, safe, and things like that. Well, here David says that God is like that. Uh, in the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I put my trust, it says in the New King James. Um, so God is both the person and the place we take refuge. And I put here, the word occurs 26 times in the Psalms compared to 10 times in the rest of the Old Testament. And if we pulled out the other big word for refuge, we would find that true, that that word is used more in the Psalms. And so in their prayer lives, David and the other psalmists uh, regularly think of God as their refuge, which is pretty neat because um, one time I did a study 
And before you get to the wisdom literature where the Psalms is, when you go back to um, the word refuge, before it occurs in what we call the Psalms, most of the occurrences early on are related to uh, a special city that they had set up in Israel. Have you ever read about a city of refuge? So Israel had a country that I I know George worked at the prisons once upon a time. Uh, Israel didn't have any prisons. They found a way to have a country without having any prisons. Now, they had to apply the death penalty a little bit more than we do in the modern world, including for things like kidnapping and extreme disrespect to parents and stuff like that, you know. Uh, But there were cases where you might accidentally cause somebody's death And uh, the family of those that you cause the death of would look for vigilante justice, you know. And so Israel had cities set up throughout the land where if you inadvertently caused another person's death, but you didn't think the family would listen to you while you tried to make your case, you could flee to a city of refuge and you could stay there and the family could come, but they would keep you safe within that city uh, while everything was being figured out, you know. And when the high priest down in Jerusalem uh, would die, or the high priest wherever the tabernacle was before the temple, when the high priest would die, you would be able to come back out again. And so they had a way for you to um, uh, do that. Now, if there were witnesses, you're probably out of luck. You know, they knew it was a real murder and stuff like that. So they, you know, there, there, there was, this was for when it was questionable. But so refuge was a place you went to, right? But as we think about the life of David and his use constantly, this word refuge in the Psalms, there were times when David didn't have anywhere to go. When he was on the run from Saul, he didn't have a place that was safe for him. Later, when he was on the run from Absalom, people helped him, but he had to go to the next place. He was hunted, right? And so I think about all the people that I talk to, where unfortunately, as a youth pastor, I would talk to teenagers. Their home wasn't a safe place. They didn't have a safe home to go to. Sometimes at school, they'd be bullied. It wasn't a safe place to go to, you know. Sometimes because they were awkward and weird, it's hard to keep the church youth group kids from being nice to them and respectful to them rather than bully them and stuff like that, too, or speak, speak poorly to them, you know. And uh, others experience that in their marriages, in their homes, their workplaces, uh, you know. And, and that's a real shame. It's a tragedy, you know. Um, so David, in his poetry and his what became Israel's songs, speaks of God being a person you can go to when there's not a place to go to. And that's as relevant today, of course, as it was a kajillion years ago, you know. Um, But I don't know if you've ever made the connection with where David got it from. I mean, he knew about a city of refuge he could go to, but he's saying that God is his refuge. And um, it, it appears, you know where he learned that from? From godly Ruth and Boaz, his great, great grandparents. Because... As, as near as I can tell, the first time that it's used for a, the person of God instead of a place is in, uh, when Boaz is giving Ruth a compliment for turning from her pagan gods and turning to trust in God. Uh, let's find it. Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Um, Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Somebody uh, that gets that, go ahead and read it. And gives us a chance to really see if you know where 
Ruth is in the Scriptures, right? Uh, after the Pentateuch, the Torah, it's Joshua judges Ruth in the English. I wish Joshua wouldn't do that, but you know, people can be cruel. Joshua's judging Ruth all the time. And uh, so Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Somebody read that for us. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward given you by the Lord to gather Israel under whose wings you have come to take her. So Boaz, when he's complimenting Ruth, they're not even married yet. This is why they're courting. Uh, even pre-courting, he's just, he's just talking about her testimony. And he says, uh, uh, read it again, Vance. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward is given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under what you have done, O Pam, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. It makes you think of the eagle, you know, sliding its chick, you know, underneath there, underneath the, uh, the things. And that, that analogy goes forth as the scripture goes along. But David took that phrase and applied it to God. He learned it from a godly great, great grandparent or so, whatever Ruth was in that whole sequence. And with that background, we look again at the Psalms. So verses 1 and 2 tells us the only sure refuge is Yahweh. So what happens when you spook a bird? What happens when you scare a bird? Flies away, right? They fly away to higher ground you can't get to. Um, and as those who would do David harm came closer to him, either his advisors or his own inner voice told him to run, or to put it this way, to fly. You're in trouble, David. Fly away. Fly away. Just get out of here, you know. And uh, perhaps they meant to a city refuge or something like that, but it's doubtful that when Saul was uh, chasing David, he would have respected the whole city of refuge thing. Same goes for Absalom. Uh, in fact, the history of Old Testament Israel was one in which rarely did most of, they do most of the things the beautiful law had called for. And that's kind of sad, you know, because have you ever just studied the genius of the laws that God gave Israel? And, and if you do, you think, man, you know, if, uh, if this was practiced, this would be so good. Uh, great ways of taking care of the most vulnerable in their midst, you know, basic uh, respect. I mean, people say, well, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And all that means as you look at it straight through was that uh, punishment should fit the crime, you know, restoration should fit the offense, you know, and, and what it takes. So uh, retribution, restitution, uh, just um, good stuff in the law like that, that addresses a fair, a wide variety of things. Uh, you know, even um, the infamous uh, speaking of Israel's Old Testament law related to slavery, it's not really slavery. It's more like what we'd say indentured servitude. So if you couldn't pay your bills, uh, but the bills still had to be paid or you'd lose the family farm and stuff like that, you could actually hire yourself out to uh, another uh, Jewish person and uh, within, you know, it'd be a six-year work contract and the seventh year you went free. If during that time I was actually serving George like that and George uh, became angry with me and hit me enough to chip my tooth, that, the book of Exodus says you're supposed to go free at that very moment, you know. Uh, which is, I mean, minimal um, amount of uh, violence, um, you know, so really cool like that. It said, if you kidnap a person, you were to be put to death. So uh, all of the slavery that horrifies us uh, from the American slave trade and the English slave trade included kidnapping people, taking them away from what they'd known and selling them to others. Absolutely not what the Old Testament uh, called for. It was, 
you know, I mean, some of, some people I know are enslaved to credit card debt and other things for 30, 40, 50 years, and Israel had a way to just deal with it and get you back on track, you know, which is pretty cool. So just, but, but they had so many beautiful things, and it just often didn't get practiced, you know. And that's why if you ever look closely at the sermons, not the prophecies of the prophets, but the sermons of the prophets where they're talking about matters in the current day, the prophets in their preaching say, God said, do this to help widows. You're mistreating them. God said, do this for servants, for foreigners, and you're mistreating them. You know, uh, orphans, you're mistreating, you know, all these different things. And so they're railing on them in their preaching for not doing what God's law had said. And in fact, uh, you know, even related to, uh, we, we, we get such a kick out of looking at their wonderful feasts and festivals. There were uh, decade-long periods where they didn't observe the feasts like they should, and instead they were doing Baal worship and Ashtoreth worship and things like that, you know. In fact, um, Jeremiah connected the 70 years of captivity to that being how many seven-year periods had passed without them practicing the seventh-year sabbatical for the land and for the people and for all the things that were supposed to kick in at the seventh year that they had just completely, you know, violated and things. They probably didn't do the year of Jubilee many times, you know, the 50th year up thing where all debts were to be reset. And so it couldn't be that, uh, um, you know, you would lose the family property completely at the 50th year mark. It was a totally reset to families and things like that. So anyway, uh, another way we know that is, let's uh, turn to 2 Kings chapter 23, where it tells us that they just didn't often do what they were supposed to do. Good to hear those Bible pages turning there. It's always mystified me that there's folks that don't bring a Bible to a Bible study. Um, of course, now it's hard to check up on people because sometimes they got it on their phone, you know, but oh well. So first, so I'm 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 21 says, Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God. This is King Josiah. As it is written in the book of the covenant, such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Wow. I mean, Passover, that's one of the main ones, right? <laughs> to be held every year and all the people come, and yet they had neglected it so much. And that says that that about the time of Josiah when the north had already fallen. And there may have been times they kept part of the Passover, but not in exact obedience to what God had called for. Um, you could bet they hadn't done everything they could with the city of refuge law either. So uh, the fact that David still kept it going through his personal uh, prayer times pretty good. God was amazingly patient with them, and thank God He's patient with us. And I've given you this for a fill in the blank. When David was harassed by Saul and others, there really wasn't many places to go where he would find true refuge. So David did what we need to do. When he couldn't go to a place of refuge, he went to a person of refuge. And I, you know, so, so good. So good. So in the Lord I, I, is my refuge. I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, go to something else for trust, right? And think about how that applies to us before we go on to the question of verse 3. Um, when we are in trouble and uh, we need relief, oftentimes 
what do we do? We think about it the best way we know how and devise our own human solutions and we don't turn to the Lord and His instruction for what we need to do. Instead, we turn to what's in our own eyes to do. And you think about Abraham and Sarah. That's how we got the you know, whole thing with Ishmael instead of Isaac, because instead of trusting in the Lord, relying on Him, instead they said, well, uh, you know, the people around us, they let you to have uh, relations with their maid, and that counts as a child. So you can do that, Abraham. It's legal. Uh, and he did that, and it caused grief because it wasn't what God had said to do, right? And uh, boy, I mean, as we mentioned this morning with the verse about Isaiah, woe to the nation that calls good bad, and ba or bad good, evil good, and good evil. We're, we're in a day now where all kinds of things that we think are okay are now legal, but that God calls sin that needs to be repented of. And, um, you know, um, we... Uh, if, if we lean back and say, well, it's okay because it's legal, then, you know, people are going to develop all kinds of problems with alcohol, drugs, etc. as these things increasingly. Well, in Danville, we've got it with gambling, don't we? You know, uh, the fact that it's legal to do does not mean it will be what God wants you to do in stewardship of the resources He gives. So verse 3 leads to this big question. What can the righteous do? I've, I've often... Um, meditated on this verse. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Because we live in a country where a lot of foundations have been destroyed. Uh, we live in a, a state where a lot of the foundations have been destroyed. We live in a city where a lot of the foundations have been destroyed. What can the righteous do when all around them foundations are destroyed? And of course, the short answer is you do all you can, right? <laughs> uh, but it's a sad reality for a person, for a family, for a business, for a church, for a city, for a country. And the reality is this, you know, if, you, if I was to put building blocks up here for you and just uh, stack them one by one, you know, and I should have done this, I should have brought this in as a visual for you, um, but just take the Jenga blocks or whatever it is, you know, and put them all the way up. And it takes care to build that tower of blocks up like that and lay those bricks. But what can happen? You can just push them over with one poor decision, one uh, poor, poorly said word. It takes a long time to build, that's your fill in the blank there, it takes a long time to build an exceptional life and reputation, but it can be seriously damaged quickly by reckless sins. And recently I, I uh, interacted with some folks and they had a dear friend who, uh, you know, did something uh, unethical. It was sin, unbiblical, sin, unethical. And um, they'll never uh, be the same person uh, again. They can be forgiven and, and they can have a good life and, and, and have a lot go on there. Um, but my friend was commenting about the other guy. Um, they, he, that person has ruined really the rest of their life and their testimony for just about nothing of eternal uh, comfort to himself. Mm, mm, mm. I think about Tiger Woods, the golfer, right? You remember that story. Tremendous golfer, savvy marketer, first billionaire athlete, married to a model, but apparently uh, having a beautiful wife and all these things and a great family wasn't enough for him. He, he became a serial adulterer and now all he worked for has been lost to fleeting pleasure. And he is still trying to rebuild, you know, that image. And Nike's trying to help him rebuild it. 
I think of a business that starts out delivering a quality product at a competitive price and provides good customer service. Then some new employees come in and try to save money by reducing the quality of the product or by cutting corners in customer service. And all of a sudden, Howard Johnson motels and far more stores are no more stores, right? You know. Uh, places that uh, didn't keep on. I think of a church originally very focused on their purpose of reaching lost souls for Christ and helping them become disciples and make disciples. And then they get comfortable and complacent and forget their purpose and start to worry about the effect on the building of all these new people. And overnight, the Spirit starts directing lost people to churches that have built up to reach them, you know. And so, as I say, every church needs to, every 20 years or so, re-up, reorganize around the gospel and uh, cut some of the, the fat out that's keeping from uh, doing the things God would have us to do. I think of a country by, built by hardworking people who took God's Word seriously, valued life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, who spent less than they took in, scrimped and sacrificed and saved so they could give their own children a better start than they had. And then in one generation or two, we've largely abandoned the faith and common sense principles that made our country great. And America is not the first time these kind of experiments have been run and throwing out God's truth and trying to build around something else. Other nations have done stuff like it before, putting godless ways ahead of God's good ways. And they have uh, been judged sometimes out of existence. Uh, we're something like a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah, aren't we? Right? For the judgment of God. And uh, I don't like... Uh, I don't like uh, flippant statements, but I think it's a good statement, you know, that if God doesn't judge America, he's got to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, I've heard that glibly said. That breaks my heart to say. Breaks my heart to say. Or perhaps we're more like Esau, who sold his birthright rather than face a few more hours of hunger. Um, like him, we want instant gratification. We want the big house, big car, big electronic gadgets. We want to feed our lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and our pride of life. Um, because we've been lying to ourselves for so long, it's easier to believe the lies of our politicians when they promise us we can have it all right now in our generation. Um, and to the extent that all that's true of any of us, uh, David was wondering if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we should do too. And if that involves us, we need to repent, uh, you know, in the last few years, we've seen a wrecking ball taking the foundations of our great country, and in large part, they've been destroyed. Well, what can the righteous do? Well, thankfully, he answers his own question in verses 4 through 7. Of course, the short answer, before I give the answers that are in your notes, the short answer is the righteous needs to do everything they can do, right? Because God gives each of us a sphere of influence and... Um, you know, I, I love the story of the little child, you know, on the beach throwing starfish back into the ocean. And the old codger comes along and says, hey, why are you doing that? He says, it doesn't make a difference. Look, the whole beach is full of starfish that have washed up. It doesn't matter at all what you're doing. And the little kid says, well, it mattered to that one. <laughs> that one I threw back in and he'll get to live. And uh, I think, you know, we need to be ready to see how God can use us, you know, uh, constantly to improve our, um, our cities, our counties, our states, our countries, our world. And of course, um, you know, I, I think we want to, you know, in, in investment, they talk about having a diversified portfolio. <laughs> I think in ministry, you should have a diversified portfolio too. You know, I think you should say, okay, how do I have a way to help uh, my church? You know, what am I using my gifts and talents is to, to, to make my church uh, be a place that's thriving. 
what am I using my gifts and talents in to, for my uh, community that I live in and my state and my world and sometimes the other side of the world, you know. Uh, so Gary and Nehemiah 7 uh, have seen ways of helping people around the world as well. So what can the righteous do? Verse, the first thing in verses 4 through 7, realize that God is still on His throne and actively engaged. Look what he says in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. So He sees. He examines. He will judge wicked deeds. He will reward righteous deeds. Because verse 5 says, the Lord is testing the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And he talks about judgment in verse 6. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. So that was not just a Sodom and Gomorrah thing in the past. God says the wicked are going to experience that in the future. And we, of course, hear of hell as a place of torment forever and ever. Or as Billy Graham would say, forever and ever. <laughs> so we want to realize God is still on the throne, that uh, there's an accountability after this life. And the second thing we want to do is don't make America's problems worse with your own wrecking ball, right? <laughs> this follows from the fact that God will judge wicked deeds. And I'll tell you what, uh, it is so sad that we can't go another month without hearing about another preacher that's done something sinful and stupid. It's sad that we can't go three months, six months in the church without hearing somebody walking away from a commitment that they made before God, you know. Um, and there's lots of difficulties out there. So it follows uh, from the fact that God will judge wicked deeds. If wickedness is ruining the country, sometimes Christians despair and say, well, everybody's doing it. I might as well also. No! Don't let people say, don't. Don't be part of the problem, right? You know, if a hole's getting dug that's a bad hole, don't help dig it deeper, you know? Um, no, no, a thousand times no. When the foundations are destroyed, the last thing the righteous should do is contribute to the foundations remaining destroyed. Others may cheat in their school or workplace. The righteous does not. Others may be having sex before marriage or adultery on their spouse, but the righteous should not. Others may be putting things on credit cards they can't afford, but the righteous should not. Others may be flipping the bird angrily at other drivers on the road, but the righteous should not, you know. And so we've got specific calls from the Lord. And, you know, earlier we were judging Israel, weren't we? All those good teachings they had. And for years and decades they didn't apply them. <laughs> Christians have a lot of teachings also, right? Uh, bless those who persecute you. No, I'm going to be mad for a while. I'm going to hold on to that grudge. I'm not going to practice forgiveness. You know, I, I, I can't tell you. I'm, I'm up to hundreds of conversations in my 30-something years of ministry where somebody knows they need to forgive something but, uh, you know, isn't going to do it. And they're a Christian. They're just, I'm, I'm not going to forgive it. Uh, and, and they know that Jesus taught forgiveness, and they know there's every once in a while the pastor tells a great story about somebody being forgiven, but they've just decided, I'm going to be angry at that person the rest of my life, and I'm not going to practice forgiveness. You see it among preachers. And uh, praise the Lord. Every once in a while he works with a dogged pastor or a Christian friend that says, I don't see there's a loophole in here for you on that one person, brother, you know, and stuff. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who despitefully use you. And be open to 
you know, always forgiving before God. You need to do that and then be open to having a chance to verbalize forgiveness to somebody that you've already written off. Very basic teaching, and it will be freeing when we do that. Um, Sometimes when I deal with people bound up in stress um, and very anxious people, at the core of that is a lifelong laundry list of people they have not forgiven. And I'm talking about people in churches. I'm talking about people that are going to go to heaven. They are Christians, but are just balled up in the inside because of this inability to uh, practice the biblical teachings there. So we don't want to make America problems worse with our own wrecking balls, uh, and sometimes we do that. Oh, the third thing you want to do is pick up your hammer and build what you can. This is a message for Nehemiah 7. Gary's a builder. He takes his hammer and tools around the world and stuff. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The answer is everything we can. Amen? Um, Because the Pandora's box has been opened in America of sinful expressions, nothing makes us blush anymore. And very little would surprise us to hear about what's going on in the lives of the members and regular tenders of the tabernacle or other churches in town and things like that. Um, But sometimes when ministers get together, we spend time talking about how we see it all in the church right now. And sometimes it's a really gloomy outlook. But I choose to see this era that we live in as a huge opportunity to be part of God altering the trajectory of young people through what we do in Awana, through what we do in youth group, through what we do in young adult ministry, Um, altering the trajectory of struggling families and those who don't get it at all. Uh, One of the great things is there is an entire uh, generation of refugees from these liberal ideas that are finding their way into the church. And as we reach out to and love on these folks, we have a tremendous opportunity to help them rebuild. They know nothing, many of them, about uh, church culture and the kind of things that uh, are okay to say or not to say. So they blurt out the, the weirdest kind of questions whenever they wind up in Sunday school class or in a small group among us or talking to the pastor afterwards. Sometimes that includes a, a curse word popping out or something like that. But we can handle it. We're ready for it, right? We're ready to help people get from where they are to where God wants them to be. And it's a tremendous opportunity. And many times... Um, as we deal with folks that are just so refreshingly honest about their struggles and their addictions and things like that, um, we find out that people around them that have been in the church for decades are listening in and going, well, golly, I kind of need to talk about the same thing, but I've been embarrassed to do it. I've been afraid to do it. You know, so you never know what a person being honest and real and getting, uh, you know, dealing with their sin with others and getting the Word of God into them, when they start doing that and are honest about it and testify about it, uh, how it can influence others. I've been here six years now. There are some amazing testimonies around here of God working and bringing people through all kinds of different stuff. And uh, we're almost there. Um, And when I mean we're almost there, I mean that uh, there are people that feel comfortable telling me and some of our leaders about what God's brought them out of. But then I say, you know what? I think the whole church would benefit from hearing your story, you know, in somehow, some way. And uh, that's when people, I don't know about that, you know, (laughs) know, and their heads go down. And of course, it has to be all very carefully and tactfully done. But God saves us and brings us through things so we can impact others. And as the stories of those healed marriages and those uh, that have overcome and forgiven stuff gets out, it makes others say, 
yeah, 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 I'm, I'm ready to, to go like that too. And uh, so I'm calling out believers, everyone here tonight, to do something when you come together with other believers. Spend more time strategizing actually rebuilding America than complaining about what lies in ruins. You know, it's so easy uh, when we get together with other believers to talk about, to get stuck in verse 3. Hey, let's talk about how the foundations are destroyed and which, you know, ah, this political party is responsible for it. Oh, this, this corruption in city government is responsible for this, this, that. You know, it's so easy to just do those things. But man, I hope we can get to where at least half of that time is transitioning and saying, well, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do to rebuild men's lives like George wants to do? Young adult ministry like Jameson and Anna want to do along with Eddie. And uh, all the things that, you know, uh, and, and when we see something, let's celebrate it. Let's talk about it. Let's advocate for it. You know, to get Gary, uh, been advocating for years for the Saruni Girls Ministry, you know, and what they do. And we finally had a chance to have a look, you know, and now this coming year we got them in the budget and, uh, you know, and, and uh, want more people to experience the ministry there and, and how it's making a tangible difference in a very dark place. Um, you know, we, uh, we want to, you know, th th there, there's much that uh, we'd love to do but need the workers to do, you know. So we've got one good news uh, a club going really well at Kentucky Elementary School. And I know before the pandemic we were saying, what other school can we get to? Man, can we help one of Danville schools with this? And then, of course, it kind of talked petered out as the pandemic came and stuff. And we might get to talking about it again, but we're going to need workers to do it, you know. And so what can we do to get the gospel into those public schools to get the help where it's needed? Um, David was deeply upset that his country had been decimated by wickedness. Um, if this happened after Bathsheba and Uriah, he had been part of bringing sexual sin and violence to the nation. But here he is acknowledging that times like this call for repentance, trust in the Lord and righteous deeds. And so, you know, let's just encourage all those that take their faith seriously to leave the wrecking ball at home and let's start building things up, right? So what can the righteous do? Well, he can realize God's still on the throne. He can stop contributing any way that he's doing it to making the world a better place, you know. Um, and then he can pick up his hammer and start building back all the ways that God wants us to build up. Uh, those in our families, our friends, our church, our city, our state, our country, our world. Well, let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.